Christmas series that we are calling The Women Who Gave Us Jesus. Uh, Real quick, I'll just kind of summarize the why behind this whole series. In Matthew's gospel account, before he gives us the, um, you know, the Christmas story, which is the story of Jesus entering into human history, uh, the very first thing that Matthew presents us with in his gospel is the genealogy of Jesus. And that's basically his way of saying that if, if you really want to understand the meaning of Christmas, uh, you first <clears throat> need to understand the family through which Jesus entered the world. And one of the things that's so unique about Matthew's genealogy is that in a time and in a culture that really only paid attention to the names and the accomplishments of women, uh, the geneal- uh, pardon me, only, only paid attention to the names and accomplishments of men, the genealogy of Jesus includes uh, the names of women, five women to be exact. And so what we're doing for this series as we lead up to Christmas is we're taking a week uh, looking at each one of the women named in that genealogy and exploring how the, the, the great themes of their stories really are pointing forward to and shedding light in order to help us understand the meaning of Christmas. And so this morning, as we are in the, the third week of this series, we're looking at the third woman named in the genealogy, that's Ruth. And I just want to kind of say this on the front end, uh, which maybe this is a little bit of an insecurity of mine coming to the surface, but it's a little difficult to teach the story of Ruth in one week. Because the other four women mentioned in the genealogy, they all have stories dedicated to them in Scripture, but Ruth has more than a story. She has an entire book dedicated to her in the Old Testament uh, called, you guessed it, the book of Ruth. And so what I'm going to do is I'll read you the, um, it's a four-chapter book, and I would encourage you to read it this week if you haven't or haven't in a while. But what I'll do on the front end is just kind of read you the bookends and then fill in the gaps, and then we'll, we'll, we'll pull out some themes. So let me first off read, um, I'll read a a short passage from the beginning and then a short passage from the end of the book. We're going to start in Ruth chapter 1, be in verse 8. It says, she, being Naomi, said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the house of your new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. No, they said to her. We will go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, do not persuade me to leave you or go back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And we'll pivot to the end of the story. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he was intimate with her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, 
Praise the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and took care of him. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is God's word. <clears throat> so let me kind of fill in the gaps here for you. Didn't want to read the whole four chapters to you, so here's the, here's the condensed version. The story of the book of Ruth begins with a woman named Naomi, who along with her husband and two sons, two young sons, leaves Israel in the wake of this famine and goes to a foreign country. It's the land of Moab. When they get there, after an undisclosed period of time, Naomi's husband dies. It's a very abrupt, he just died. We don't know what the details were, um, but he was gone. And so her sons grew. They came of, of age to be married, and they found uh, two Moabite women to marry. And so they got married. And then after being married for another 10 years, both of Naomi's sons died. So she's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. Now, if you were here two weeks ago when we talked about the story of Tamar and Judah, we talked at... at, at I wouldn't say at length, but we got, you know, into really the plight of widows, specifically in ancient Near Eastern societies. To be a, a, a widow, and, and in particular to be a childless widow in societies like the one Naomi was living in, basically catapulted you to the bottom rung of the social ladder in society, and it opened you up to a really um, kind of miserable stretch of time in front of you if, if something didn't happen, you know, to kind of intervene. Uh, in Naomi's day and age, your, your family was basically, it was your source of, of meaning, of security, of significance. The only way to really have a shot at a decent life was to have a family. And so she's in this position at the very beginning of the story of Ruth where, uh, first off, she's, 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 she's old. She says that to, to uh, Ru uh, Ruth and Orpah herself. She's an older woman, meaning she couldn't go back to her parents and rely on them. They probably weren't living any longer. Um, on top of that, she had pretty much no hope that she would remarry, which she does not remarry in this story. But in addition to that, she, she lost her children, and so she has no one to care for her in her, in her old, old age. And so kind of in the, in the wake of her whole life unraveling in this foreign country, uh, Naomi looks at her two daughters-in-law, that was Ruth and Orpah, and she gives them what was advice that she didn't even really need to give them because it was obviously the right thing on paper to do. She tells Ruth and Orpah, listen, you, you two need to stay here in Moab. I'm going to go back to Israel. You need to leave me. They'd been together for 10 years prior to that, uh, but Naomi said, it's time for us to part ways. And she said that because that was the best possible advice for Ruth and, and Orpah. She knew that as young woman, women, um, they still stood a decent chance at getting remarried. Um, even if not, they had family in Moab that they could rely on. But, but more than either of those things, Naomi knew that if she asked them, uh, to follow her into Israel as foreign widows, nothing good lay ahead of them. And the story in chapter 2, which I didn't get a chance to read, kind of alludes to this in a really sobering way. There's this particular exchange where Ruth um, finds herself in the field of a, a guy named Boaz, who we're going to talk about here in a moment. Good guy, that Boaz. And, uh, and Boaz comes to Ruth, and he says, and this gives you an idea of what Ruth's life was like. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a widower in a foreign country's life was like. Boaz comes to Ruth and says, hey, I want you to stay in my field and not leave my field because, Boaz says, I've ordered my men not to touch you. 
Now, that detail is included in the story to kind of give you a glimpse behind the scenes into Ruth's reality. Everywhere she went, she dealt with the very real possibility of physical and sexual assault every day of her life. Uh, There was a ton of racial tension in that day and age between Moab and Israel in particular. So Ruth, just by being a Moabite, basically would live her life in Israel under constant threat of violence and, of course, being a foreigner, she's got nobody to advocate for her. She's got nobody to defend her. She's got nobody to protect her. Naomi knew all of that, and so she looks at these two girls. I, I just read it to you. Basically begs them, you have to, we have to part ways. You have to stay here. You have to look out for yourself. When you understand all of that, uh, this little monologue that Ruth delivers to Naomi begins to hit as hard as it should because despite knowing all of the terrible things that likely lay ahead of her, Ruth looks Naomi dead in the eye, and she says, this is the, by a wide margin, the most I- iconic part of the story of Ruth. It's probably one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible. Ruth looking Naomi dead in the eye, knowing what leaving and going to Israel with her means, she said, do not persuade me to leave you or go back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. <clears throat> Ruth's words there, this is a word that doesn't get used a ton in our, in our culture, but Ruth's words there are the language of covenant. They're not entirely different from you know, the kind of a promise that a spouse makes to a spouse on a wedding day. She's looking Naomi in the eye and telling her, I am committed to you. And nothing but death is powerful enough to break the bond that we will have, which is an amazing thing. So what, what you're seeing here at the very beginning of the story, and you don't really understand the story of Ruth until you get this, is that right at the beginning here, Ruth makes the conscious, deliberate decision to walk away from the comfortable and walk away from the familiar and make this journey into the great unknown. That's what happens. Now, that isn't necessarily a unique thing to Ruth because lots of, of people, lots of groups of people throughout human history have done that. But one thing they all had in common is they made this journey into the, follow me here, everyone who's done what Ruth has done has has taken these steps into the great unknown for the same fundamental reason. It's because they believed that eventually, somehow, someway, where they were going would eventually prove to be better than where they were standing. And so they started moving. You see that all through Scripture. You look at Abraham making the conscious decision to leave Haran. You got Israel leaving Egypt. You got the disciples in the gospel accounts leaving these, you know, nets loaded with fish on the shores of Galilee to follow this rabbi who's probably going to get himself and them killed. One thing they all have in common is they were willing to take this giant risk with the belief, with the surefire conviction that there's going to be something better on the other side of that risk. I'm saying on this so that you can understand, here's Ruth taking an unbelievable risk despite the fact she knows something worse is waiting for her on the other side of it. That's how powerful her commitment to Naomi was. So when they get back to Israel, Ruth essentially becomes the breadwinner, and she, because like Naomi says in this story, she's an older woman now, and so Ruth decides, takes it on herself to care for both of them, and she starts gleaning fields, and she happens into the field of a guy named, Bo, a strapping young lad, you might say, named Boaz. So let's talk about him for a minute, because he obviously comes in in the clutch at the end there. Uh, Boaz, when he hears Ruth's story and he sees the dedication of this Moabite widow to her Israelite mother-in-law, he's enamored with Ruth and he thinks really highly of her and he says as much and then Ruth on her part is enamored with Boaz because he's a man of great social standing in the Israelite community and yet he's being so kind to Ruth despite the fact that she's a member of a despised culture and race and so the two are quite taken with each other 
in ancient Near Eastern Korean Topanga story, if I say so myself. So Ruth comes back to Naomi and tells Naomi about this guy Boaz she met and, and what essentially happens. I mean, you saw how devastated, totally understandably, Naomi was at the beginning of this. When Ruth comes home and tells Naomi, hey, I kind of hit it off with this guy Boaz, Naomi essentially begins to come back to life. Because Naomi knew something Ruth didn't know when she happened upon the field of Boaz, chapter 2 tells us. Naomi knew that Boaz was one of the few people alive that could function as their kinsman redeemer. So in Israelite law, a kinsman redeemer was somebody who had the ability, if they decided to be really generous, to buy back the ancestral land that a family had lost so that that family can continue to be established and their line can continue. What happened in this story, so when when Israel got into the promised land, every family was allotted a piece of land, and the idea was that land stays in the family through generations. Well, Naomi lost her land. She was put in a position where she was forced to sell that land, and so the kinsman redeemer was a person who who could basically step in, and if they were willing to be incredibly generous at personal great personal cost to themselves, they could step in and purchase that land for Naomi to keep her name and, and her family and her line uh, continuing. But the real tension that's felt at the end of this book is that the kinsman redeemer in Naomi's case, if they wanted to step in, they needed not only to shell out a whole bunch of money to purchase that land back for Naomi, they also needed to link up with Ruth, who is, again, a member of a despised culture and race. So just think of it this way. The kinsman redeemer would not only have to take a huge hit financially, they'd have to take a huge hit socially. And this is a shame and honor culture in which your most valuable currency is your name, standing, and reputation in the community. Whoever would step in for them, would be need, they would be, they'd have to be willing to part with, with both of those, the finances and the social standing. And so Ruth, in another, I mean, you got to admire the woman. She, didn't, she just wasn't the type to stand back and let life happen. In this other incredible act of initiative and courage and boldness, she goes to Boaz in the middle of the night. And she sits at the foot of his bed while he's sleeping. And while, when he wakes up, she proposes marriage to him, which is, is, I'm just trying to get you into the story here. That's a pretty... I would say that's at least uncommon, maybe even rare in our culture. Just so understand, that didn't happen ever in this culture. You know, you don't wake up with a foreign widow from Moab saying, what do you think about you and me till death do us part? But that's what she does, and Boaz accepts, you know? And so it's this beautiful story where at the end, what you can see is that God has kind of sovereignly woven all the details together and used Ruth to graft Uh, not only Boaz, but also Naomi, into the family line of King David, and as Matthew's genealogy tells us, into the family line of the king of kings himself. It's a beautiful story. I mean, if Hallmark's looking for ideas, it's a great story. The question is, and they need some good ideas. I don't want to, I'm going to get an angry email about that. I wasn't, I didn't write that in the manuscripts. So that might have been from God. I don't know. You know, you never, the spirit moved. The point is, the question that this story begs, like everything else in the Bible, is why did God put it there? Certainly, it's for more than warm and fuzzies. And so I want to answer that question in three ways today and just pull out three of the major themes from the, from the book of, of Ruth that, that I think are so challenging, but they're so encouraging and they're so inspiring and they're so hopeful and they point us dead center to the meaning of Christmas. So first off, let's take a look at, um, I want to look at the conversion of Ruth, then I'm going to talk about the hidden wisdom of God. And then lastly, we'll conclude our time by talking about the hope of redemption. First up, the conversion of Ruth. 
So right at the beginning of this story, Naomi tries to get Ruth and Orpah to do what was on paper absolutely, it was their only option. It was the smartest thing to do. It was the only thing that made sense, which is cut ties with her, remain in Moab while she goes back to Israel. And so we looked at this, um, this beautiful, poetic, moving reply that Ruth made. But I, I want to point out a detail that maybe you missed the first time around. When Ruth is, is committing her life to Naomi, she says some things like, where you go, I'll go. And where you live, I'll live, and your people will be my people. And even further than that, she says, where you die, I'm going to die, and there will I be, be buried. It's, it's moving. It's meaningful. It's all that. But I don't know if you caught this. Naomi includes, or pardon me, Ruth includes some aspects of this covenant that she didn't need to, that would be really surprising to anybody in this day and age. Because on top of the where you go, I'll go, and, and where you live, and all that kind of stuff, she also says, by the way, your God will now be my God. And she goes even, she makes it even more personal in case that's kind of intangible and ethereal. What does that really mean? You'll observe some religious practices. No, because Ruth goes a step further than that and she says, may Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates the two of us. So what, what happens here, that name Yahweh, you might be familiar with this if you're kind of fam- familiar with you know, Moses and the burning bush. And that's the, that's the personal name that God revealed to his people Israel as he entered into a covenant with them, as he entered into a relationship with them. So I say all this to say, when Ruth invokes the personal name of God, when, when, when Ruth brings the name of Yahweh into this covenant, what's happening here, Ruth is not just committing herself to Naomi any longer, she's committing herself to Naomi's God. So what you're seeing in these verses, ladies and gentlemen, this is a conversion, is what this is which is pretty amazing if you think about it. There's a lot of people in the Bible that obviously, as much as we can know another person's heart, there's a lot of people that were pretty certain, yeah, they gave their lives to God. But more than most of the time, we don't really know when that moment was. For instance, the disciples that followed Jesus, we don't know that moment that they entered into a saving knowledge of God. But this is that moment for Ruth. And it begs the question, why? I mean, Ruth came from a time and a place where you sort of inherited the God of your region. The God of Moab was Chemosh. The God of Israel was Yahweh. And you had Baals and you had Ashtoreths and all these kinds of things. So, you know, the first question you'd be asking here is, well, why on earth would Ruth do that? Why would she commit herself to, to Naomi's God? And the answer, according to this story, is Naomi. Naomi's the reason she did that. Naomi is unquestionably the instrument that God used to bring Ruth into the family of God. So what I want to do here is just take a couple minutes and look at Naomi's example um, because what, what she does here is, is incredibly noble and it basically challenges all of us. On the one hand, what, what you're seeing in Naomi, let me put it to you this way and then I'll explain it. Naomi has this unique way of holding two things together that, that I would say probably all of us have an affinity to try to tear apart. She is amazing at holding them together. On the one hand, Naomi was not a relativist. You see this really clearly in the way that she tries to send off Ruth and Orpah, verses 8 and 9. It says, Naomi said to them, each of you should go back to your mother's home. Now listen to what she says. May the Lord, may the Lord show faithful love to you as you've shown to the dead and to me. Verse 9, she says it again. May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the house of your new husband. So let me point out what I mean by looking at what Ruth doesn't say here. Ruth does not look at Orpah and Ruth. Um, Naomi does not look at, at, at Orpah and Ruth and say, um, you know what, your gods are just as valid as, as my God. Everybody's got to have their own belief system, and I think we all got, you know, sort of a piece of the truth, so may Chemosh bless you in Moab, just like I hope Yahweh blesses me in, in Israel, and 
you know, we all got to take our own journey up to the same summit and I'll see you on the other side, right? That's not what she says here. What, what Naomi says, and this is, you know, she, she says it in a very skillful way. She says it in a loving way. It's not, you know, offensive or abrasive needlessly or anything like that. But essentially what Naomi is saying in her send-off is if you find a, a, you know, a blessed life, a life of peace, a life of shalom, the life that we're always looking for, we're all looking for, Naomi says it's going to have to be my God. It's going to have to be the Lord. It's going to have to be Yahweh, the one true God that gives it to you. You're not going to find the life you're looking for outside of him. So what you see on the one hand is Naomi is totally uncompromising in her belief. She's uncompromising when it comes to the truth. But again, let me press here. The question is, well, what actually causes Ruth to convert? And here's the answer, love. That's the answer. All right, you got to understand, because of the events of Naomi's life, She's lost her husband. She's lost her son. She's basically lost everything. She would have been, completely understandably, she would have been incredibly lonely. And yet what she says on the front end of this story, she looks at Ruth and she says, you have to leave me. You have to stay here. You have to let me go. And the question is, why would Naomi do that? And the only answer is because she actually loved Ruth. There would have been tremendous pressure in her heart just because of the grief that she was, you know, trying to, she'd be spending the rest of her lifetime processing. There'd be tremendous pressure in her heart to look at Ruth, who had been her daughter-in-law for 10 years. They had a great relationship. This was the only family Naomi had left. It, it would have been so easy for her to look at Ruth and say, Ruth, I've lost everybody. I've lost everything. I can't lose you too. Please come with me. Don't make me live my, re- my remaining years alone. And it would have been completely understandable for somebody in Naomi's position to do that. It just would have been really selfish because it wouldn't have been best for Ruth. And so what Naomi does here is even in the depths of unbearable grief, she refuses to put her wants and her needs at the fore. And instead, she puts the wants and needs of Ruth ahead of her own with a self-sacrificial love, despite the fact that Ruth didn't think like her, didn't look like her, didn't live like her, didn't worship the same God as her. And, and what happens to Ruth in this story is she's on the other side of that love, and, and essentially she says, okay, I want to know the kind of God that can produce that kind of love in a human heart. So what you're seeing in Naomi here is she, she holds together that I, don't, I think all of us, because of experiences, temperament, whatever, try to pull apart, meaning some people are really great at, at the first half of what Naomi did. They're really great at standing up for their convictions and speaking the truth without apology, but they're just a jerk in the way that they do it. They're super abrasive, they're super offensive, and so nobody wants to hear what they have to say, and they kind of move through life saying, well, the truth offends, when the truth is, yeah, but you didn't even let the truth offend because you were so offensive, nobody wanted to hear it from you. On the other side, you have people that are, that are so good at the second thing that Naomi does here. They're great at loving people that are different than them, that have arrived at different conclusions than them, and they're so warm and they're so welcoming, but they're basically cowards when it comes time to, to tell the truth, to speak with conviction, to, you know, to all of that kind of stuff. And what Naomi is doing here is she's holding together two things that, that we all try to tear apart. And so I say this to say, here's the challenge of Naomi, specifically if you're listening to this and you claim to be a Christian. <clears throat> what Naomi's showing us here is that if we who claim to be Christians have any desire for the people in our lives, friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers, whoever it is, if we have any desire for the people around us to seriously consider the truth of what we believe, the best way to do that is to love them regardless of what they believe. That's what changed Ruth's life. 
She makes this incredible, like life-changing commitment of love, not just to Naomi, but also to Naomi's God, because she was first and foremost the recipient of that kind of one-way, radical, self-sacrificing love. And I'll just say as a, as, a, as a brief but an important side note, I know there's a lot of people to the church that are new, and maybe you're checking us out and try to figure out what are we really about. I'm just looking at Naomi's example here, take it from me, please. This is the kind of church that we exist to be. All right, speaking personally, I have, I hope this doesn't come across in a different way in which I intend it, but I have absolutely no desire to pastor a by us, for us, closed off, gated community feeling kind of church. Not only because I think that's a really boring way to spend my life, but also because it is completely contrary to God's heart as revealed in Scripture. And so our aim as a church, here's what we're going to do. Here's who we're going to be. On the one hand, we will hold unapologetically, like Naomi does here, we will hold unapologetically to the truth that our God is the true God. And the lives that we're all looking for, the salvation that we're all looking for, can only be found exclusively by grace through faith in Him. Yet at the same time, we're going to love and serve and welcome even people who have not arrived at that conclusion. That's who, we, who we're going to be. That's what we're going to do. And just in case that sounds kind of watered down or wishy-washy to anybody, I'll just remind you that Paul the Apostle in the Epistle of Romans said it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. We don't repent and then God says, well, fine, I'll start being kind. We experience the completely undeserved kindness of God that melts our hearts. It transforms our lives. That's the formula. That's the conversion of Ruth. Secondly, let's talk about the hidden wisdom of God. I really like this point. I think this point is very hopeful and encouraging, but it's going to feel a little heavy because it's probably going to hit home with some people, Lord willing. <laughs> it means it's good. I hope that's what that means. Uh, the, hidden, the hidden wisdom of God. <clears throat> One of the things that students of the Bible have pointed out about the book of Ruth, specifically when you hold it up and compare it to other books in the Old Testament nearly every other book in the Old Testament, is that one of the things that will immediately catch your eye about the book of Ruth is that absolutely nothing will catch your eye about the book of Ruth. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is nothing spectacular happens in this story whatsoever. Uh, there are no miracles. There are no dreams. There are no visions. Uh, there are no theophanies. There's, there's, there's no radical deliverance. There's, there's nothing like that. And I say that to say, and, and, and here's where I think this is going to start hitting home for people. The book of Ruth is written to people who look around their lives. I'll make it personal. Maybe you look around your life, and you see no signs that God's at work at all. You see no evidence that he cares about what you're going through at all. There are no um, answers to prayer in your life. There are no unexplainable coincidences. There are none of those aha moments that kind of fill you with this, this, this hope that maybe he, he, he does see me and he does care. The book of Ruth is, is written to people who look around their lives and all they see, instead of the hand of God working powerfully and obviously, they just see the daily grind of unrelenting hardship. That's where Naomi was. And what this book is getting across from end to end is that even in those times, and even in those lives, God is working in countless ways behind the scenes for his glory and our good. So let's take that a step further, and here's where this is going to get real personal. 
on the front end of this story, I actually did read this part to you. Uh, on the front end of this story, you, you can look at some of the ways that Naomi describes her life. And uh, she's, she's one of the, the many things to admire about Naomi is she doesn't hold back and she doesn't play pretend and she doesn't put on that kind of like too blessed to be stressed thing that people think is worth putting on. Naomi says to the girls when she's trying to send them back to Moab and they say, no, we want to be a part of your life. She says, girls, my life is too bitter for anyone to be a part of it at this point. She says, the Lord's hand has turned against me. And when she comes back to Israel, they're, they're, you know, they're trying to welcome her because they missed her and they loved her and they, you know, they're basically kind of throwing a parade and they're saying, oh, it's great to see you, Naomi. And she basically stops them right there and says, don't call me Naomi. You call me Mara from now on, which is the Hebrew word translated bitter. And she, she follows that by saying, and this is kind of the summary statement for how she viewed her life. She said, the Lord sent me away full, but he's brought me back empty. So you listen to the way that Naomi describes her life. She's bitter, she feels abandoned, and she's utterly empty. Now, two things can be true at once. I completely understand why Naomi felt that way and spoke in that way, and I, don't, I think any one of us with self-awareness would say we probably wouldn't be looking or sounding a whole lot more hopeful than Naomi should God see fit to walk us through what he walked Naomi through. But I'd ask you to consider, when you look at Naomi's life, ask yourself, who does she have? What does she have in her life when she's saying all those things? When she's saying, my life is filled with bitterness. My life is filled with abandonment. My life is filled with, filled with emptiness, ironically. You know what she had in her life clinging to her and walking beside her when she was saying that? She had Ruth. Now, here's what we know, having the benefit of hindsight that Naomi did not know in Ruth chapter 1. Ruth was this treasure that God had sovereignly orchestrated the events of Naomi's life to bring into her life that would functionally make Naomi a part of the most breathtakingly beautiful act of redemption in human history that no one in the Old Testament could see coming, right? Through the events of Naomi's life, God himself would enter into human history in order to take sin and suffering and death on himself so that God could do away with those things without also doing away with us. And according to Scripture, when Jesus completes the work that he began, he will completely wipe the universe clean of everything that we intuitively know is wrong about our existence. That's sickness, disease, sorrow, grief, loss, pain, suffering, death, all of it. Jesus is going to clean all of that up. And Naomi has been brought into that story. I say this to say, would you please consider this? If God had downloaded a vision of everything he was going to do in and through Naomi in Ruth chapter 1, she would have been weeping tears of joy. Her mourning would have turned to dancing, and she would have floated through the rest of her life. But here's, here's the point. She couldn't see any of that. Naomi could not possibly see how God could bring anything good out of all of the bad that had taken place in her life. And you know why she couldn't see that? Because Naomi had something that we all have, whether we want to admit it or not. Naomi had really strong opinions about how her life was supposed to go and how God was supposed to do things. And she was so fixated on her agenda and her ideas and her plan for her life and the destruction of all those things that she couldn't see what God was up to. She couldn't see what God could possibly do in the wake of all that. And now we're not talking about just Naomi any longer. Now we're talking about us because I'm willing to bet that there's a number of us who can relate to that. Where you have had a plan 
an agenda for your life, even if you never said it out loud or wrote it down on a piece of paper, but you had a plan for how you thought your life was going to go, and it hasn't gone that way. That is an incredibly difficult place to be, but I actually think it is a vital and necessary part of the human experience that we be led through that place. Ronald Rollheiser, in his book, Sacred Fire, I've quoted, I've pulled a number of quotes from this book to you. He speaks to this very thing in a powerful way. It's a little bit longer quote, but the first time I read these words, I highlighted them. And um, maybe what I'm about to read is going to help help you make sense of what God's leading you through. All right, so, so please lean in here. Here's what he said. <clears throat> we struggle with different forces at various times in our lives. When we're young and still trying to establish an identity, these forces are very much embedded in the chaotic, fiery energies of restlessness, wanderlust, sexuality, the quest for freedom, and the sheer hunger for experience. As we sort out more who we are, make permanent commitments and take on more and more responsibilities, we soon find ourselves beset by a new set of struggles. Disappointment, tiredness, boredom, frustration, resentment. Consciously and unconsciously, we begin to sense that the big dream for our lives is over without its ever paying the huge dividends we expected. We become disappointed that there is not more, that we've not achieved more, and that we ourselves are not more. As we sense ourselves stuck with second best, reluctant to make our peace there. All those grandiose dreams, all that potential, all that energy, and what have we achieved? More of our sensitivities begin to break through, and we sense more and more how we've been wounded and how life has not been fair to us. New demons then emerge. Bitterness, anger, jealousy, and a sense of having been cheated. Disappointment cools the fiery energies of our youth and our enthusiasm for life begins to be tempered by bitterness and anger as we struggle to accept our limits and make peace with a life that now seems too small and unfair. And he ends with this. Where we once struggled to properly control our energies, we now struggle to access them. Where we once struggled not to fall apart, we now struggle not to petrify. I read that cheery quote to you because that's where Naomi was. And if Ronald Rollheiser is right, and I think he is, then sooner or later, that's where we're all going to find ourselves. Because we all have agendas for how our lives are supposed to go, and we all eventually discover God has a different agenda. And if we're not careful, then we can get so fixated on the life God decided not to give us that we miss the life he's laid out for us. And if that speaks deeply to you, if that resonates with you, if you can feel that, if that comes home to you, then the good news is the book of Ruth was written for you. And the challenge of the book of Ruth to to every reader that would dare move across its four chapters is that sooner or later, we all have to grieve the loss of the life God decided not to give us and accept the life that he did decide to give us and move out into that life with a confident expectation that he is working behind the scenes, even if it's not readily apparent to us. So last question of the day, how do you do that? That's real easy to talk about on Sunday morning. 
I think what I just described at the end there is in some ways the work of a lifetime, you know, healing from the things that, that you've been handed and learning to let go of all of that and, and acceptance and all that stuff. That is, a, that is a lifetime's work that, frankly, a lot of people never get around to. So how do you, the question is, how do you move through life with confidence and peace and hope and joy even when your life, as you had planned it, blows up in your face? I want to a- conclude our time together by answering that question by looking at the hope of redemption. <clears throat> when I was putting this teaching together, in some ways, I, I, I kind of felt like I was teaching Tamar and Judah again. I don't know if you caught it two weeks ago, where we looked at the story of Tamar and Judah, and at the end, I was saying how it's easy to look at the story at the surface and, and say, oh, Judah's the hero, when he's really not. Tamar's the hero of that story. And in the same way, it's really easy to look at this story, and, and you look at Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. He's the hero. I want to be real clear here. Boaz is an unbelievably noble man of character that the Scripture paints in an you know, incredibly positive light, which is where he is very different than who Judah was two weeks ago. However, several thousand years ago, Hebrew scholars in reading this story decided to call it the book of Ruth and not the book of Boaz because they realized that Ruth is the central figure that points us most powerfully and most profoundly to the work of Jesus Christ. What happens at the beginning of this story is in her heart of hearts, Ruth basically looks at Naomi and she says, if I keep my life for myself and stay in Moab, then Naomi's going to lose her life. So what what I'm going to do, Ruth says, I'm going to give up my life so that Naomi can get hers back. That's exactly what she does. What happens at the forefront of this story is Ruth walks away from her father's house. She walks away from her country. She walks away from her home. And she voluntarily chooses to enter into a world where she will be vulnerable, where she will be marginalized, where she'll be disrespected, and she'll be subject to all manner of violence. And I'll just tell you, if that sounds like a story you've heard before, it's because that, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of Christmas. So I'm going to call the worship team up, and I'll I'll leave you with this one final thought today. In this story, Ruth becomes a person of greatness because she is profoundly changed by the love demonstrated to her by Naomi. And I imagine that readers of this story, in looking at that exchange, would say, I would love to become a person like Ruth. I'd love to have Ruth's faith and Ruth's courage and Ruth's confidence I'd love to be transformed like Ruth was transformed. I just wish there was a love that would enter into my life and, and powerfully transform my life. I wish I had a Naomi like that. And the gospel says you have something infinitely better because Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love for you. God demonstrated his love for you and that while you and I were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the one who in an infinitely greater way than Ruth, he, he left his father's house. He left his country. He left his home. He came down here to give up his life for us so that we could get our lives back in him. And what he did on the cross was he allowed himself to be kicked out of the family of God so that there would be room in that family for people like you and I so that we could have the hope of an inheritance so beautiful, so breathtaking that it will somehow make even the worst suffering that we experience in this life seem like nothing more than a bad dream. How can we know that? How can we hold on to that? Here's the answer. When Ruth looked at Naomi, she said, may Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates us. But Jesus Christ now, I don't know how you say this without getting emotional. Jesus Christ comes to every single one of us and he says, you know what? Yahweh did punish me and he punished me severely in your place for your sins so that now not even death is strong enough to separate us. Not even death 
will end the commitment that Jesus Christ has for you. And when that kind of love and that kind of commitment, the love of God, when that comes home to a human heart and we experience it in, an, in a deeply personal way, two things will happen. Two things will happen. Number one, we will become the kinds of people who are able to love even those who are deeply different than us, just like Naomi loved Ruth here. But even more than that, the love of God will make us the kind of people that can move through this life with confidence and peace and hope and joy, even when our plans for our lives are falling apart right in front of us because we'll know that a God who was willing to go through all that our God went through for us, that's a God that can be trusted. And even if we can't see him, even if we don't understand him, we can know a God that would do that is a God who loves us and is working for our good even if we can't see it. That's the story of Ruth, one of the women who gave us Jesus. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for a Savior that was willing to journey into the great unknown, that was willing to walk away from his country and his home and all that he deserved, the love that he had, the glory that he had, the riches that he had, to come down here and lose all that for us so that we could find all that in him. What we need more than anything else, God, is what Paul prayed for in that first chapter of Ephesians that you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that the perception of our hearts would be enlightened so that we can know in a deeply personal and life-changing way the hope of our calling, the glorious riches that are yours among the saints and the immeasurable power that you have toward those who believe. God, I just, would you open our eyes to it this morning? Would you make it real that we would see your love as demonstrated to us in Jesus as such a lived reality that it would change us into the people that, that you're calling us to be and ultimately, Father, the people that we want to be. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. All God's people said, amen.